A very good morning to you all. It's lovely to see you. Grab your tea and coffee, donut, grapes, and come and grab a seat and we'll get started. Uh, we're carrying on our series from the Old Testament. We've been looking at uh, the book of Nehemiah over the last few weeks. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, and I'm just going to... I'm just going to read through a, whiz through a chunk of this. Nehemiah chapter 5, if I can read this. Now the men, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard the outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain and new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of, this, out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Let's stop there. Uh, one of the things that you may have noticed as we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah over the last uh, couple of weeks or whatever is that week in, week out, chapter by chapter, Nehemiah finds himself having to deal with a seemingly endless array of difficult uh, challenges and problems. Uh, in chapter 1, he, he was facing the challenge of what was he actually going to do about the destruction and the desolation that was uh, happened to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 2, it's more of a sort of a strategic challenge. 
that he's facing. As, as Nehemiah has to work out how exactly it is he's going to deal with the king so that they can get the job done. In chapter 3, he's got all of these kind of organizational challenges as he tries to mobilize and envision these teams of people so that they're actually going to get the walls built. Uh, in chapter 4, as Mike looked at last week, uh, he's facing and he's got more of an external difficulty, more of an external challenge to deal with, a challenge and a threat that's coming from outside, from Israel's enemies. So therefore, it won't come as any great surprise to you to learn that chapter 5 is no different. And in this chapter, Nehemiah is confronted with an internal challenge. He's confronted with an internal disruption. And uh, the effect of that challenge and that disruption is it's causing extreme poverty. And all of it, as you just read, it comes about because there's a bunch of wealthy leaders um, and they're effectively exploiting and profiting from their uh, less advantaged uh, brothers and sisters. And kind of when you think about Nehemiah, when I was preparing for this week, (laughs) for today, you look at Nehemiah and all of these challenges uh, that he's facing, the book of Nehemiah is sort of a little bit like a hurdles race. And um, it, it, as such, it's actually a pretty good reflection of what leadership is like. Certainly leadership uh, in the church and what leadership in the church can often be like. And you kind of imagine that you're, you know, you're running down this track, you're in this hurdle race and you're, you're running along and you, ahead of you, you see this hurdle, you're like bracing yourself and you're sprinting towards it. And you leap over this hurdle and you make it and you manage it. You go, great. And your foot hits the ground and you look up. And what do you see in front of you? Another hurdle. It's like, great. Only this time you're a little bit more tired because you've just been leaping over the last hurdle. So Nehemiah is very much like that. And how is it that Nehemiah tackles the challenges that he faces as he's trying his best to lead God's people through chapter 5? Well, the first thing I think that we need to note with Nehemiah is that all the way through the book that we've read so far, and we'll see it through the rest of the book, Nehemiah is not thrown by any of the challenges that he has to face. Just by way of a backdrop to this chapter, one of the many things that we learn about this guy throughout the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah really gets that challenge is one of the realities of life. He's not shocked or thrown by challenge. In actual fact, he, Nehemiah rises in the face of it. And the Apostle Peter tells us that we too shouldn't be shocked when challenge or difficulty comes our way. We shouldn't be surprised that sometimes life just feels a bit like a hurdle race. It just feels like one thing after another. In 1 Peter 4, he writes this He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised. At the painful trial, you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see, challenge is one of the harsh realities of life. And perhaps you're here this morning and you find yourself going through a series of difficult challenges right now you may feel like or you may be feeling like you're encountering just one thing after another it just feels kind of a little bit relentless 
It may be that you're experiencing financial difficulties. It may be that you're experiencing health problems. Maybe it's a challenge that you're facing with one of your family members. Or maybe it's a challenge that you're facing at work or challenges in your marriage. It may even be that you're, you're facing challenges with church. The question is, how are we responding to those challenges? Jesus himself in, in John chapter 16 says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So the first thing I want to kind of just think about quickly is that there's nothing strange about having to face challenge. Challenge is just, challenge is just one of the realities of life. The question for us is, not will we face challenge? The question for us is how will we face it when it comes our way? And what we read about here in chapter 5 is that the challenge that Nehemiah is facing uh, here, the challenges that he's having to deal with, they're not coming from outside. They're not coming from Israel's enemies. They're not coming from outside the people of God. These are obstacles and these are difficulties, these are challenges Uh, that are coming from inside the camp, from within the Israelite community itself. Have a look at verses 1 to 5. Very often, many of the challenges that we face, uh, in fact, often some of the hardest difficulties that we have to deal with, they're they're not external. They're not far removed from us. Um, They often come from within, and they often uh, come from those nearest and dearest to us. See, it's not just outside forces. It's not just the culture. It's, um, it's not those people who are determined to sort of challenge or undermine our faith or those outside the church who um, can actually derail what the Lord is doing. Many of the most severe challenges that churches have to deal with, they often come from within the church. Um, so the church all over the world spends like an inordinate amount of time and energy and emotion constantly trying to work out how to repair some of the damage that gets caused by you know, people who leave churches and then go and join other churches. And, and, but they've left because of um, some probably unintended offense that's been caused. They get hurt and they go to another church. What the trouble is, they take that hurt with them and then that infects and affects the church that they go to. Or um, people who go from church to church to church to church. They like flit from here to there to the other, everywhere. And they never really kind of settle anywhere. They never really put their roots down anywhere. They never really find a place where they belong or they never really find a place where they can share or bring Uh, their gifts they never really find a place where they can work alongside others as mike was saying about service and serving never really find a place to work alongside others so that they can see the kingdom of god extended and then you've got all the kind of the relational challenges that we all face you know the problems that arise and bubble up in churches because we haven't quite worked out yet how to best resolve, you know, the inevitable um, conflicts, the inevitable relational conflicts that come about just when people do church together. Um, you'll have often heard me say, 
if I haven't offended you yet, um, it's probably only a matter of time. I think I'm safe in that I think I've offended most of you already, uh, so I'm kind of well through the majority. Um, if I haven't offended you yet, it's only a matter of time. The challenge isn't going to be whether I offend you or whether Kate or I offend you. And, and, and just to be clear, we won't be doing that intentionally, by the way. The challenge is going to be, how will you deal with it when we do? How will you deal with it when we do? The point is, when these challenges come, are we shocked by them? Do we recognize that challenge is one of the realities of life? You've been leading a small group for you know, more than five minutes. You know, you're probably more than well aware that it's only a matter of time before challenge in some shape or form is going to ri- you know, raise its ugly head. It's only a matter of time before, you know, um, Fred falls out with Ginger or, um, or probably more likely falls out with you and suddenly you find yourself having to deal with some kind of painful relational breakdown. It's not a matter of if challenge is going to come our way. It's a question of when. And when it does, how are we going to respond? Let me just give you the background um, to uh, verses 1 to 5, which we just read. So in order to build the walls, what's happened is a whole bunch of workers from a broad area, we looked at this in chapter 3, from a wide area around Jerusalem have left their villages to come to Jerusalem to help with the restoration work. And we read about this in chapter 3. What they did is they helped to build the various lengths of the wall as each kind of group, each kind of bunch built their various sections. But it was a tremendous step of faith uh, for these people leaving their villages, coming in from their various villages. That was real sacrifice. They they gave up their businesses for a time. They gave up the work on the farms for a time. And they decided to come into Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall and to participate and to join in with what God was doing in their midst. But what happened, in effect, was that when they left their homes and their villages and their, their, um, their trades, it's like the kind of the chief breadwinner, the breadwinner, Uh, was gone from many of the families. And so men and women, sons and daughters, left and came to Jerusalem. And so for that reason, there was nobody left holding the fort. You know, there was nobody tending the land. There was nobody generating an income. Nobody was farming the ground. Nobody was bringing in a harvest. And so we read in verse 2 that you know we're in Jerusalem now, and we and our sons and our daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive, we have to get grain. So what's happened is that no one is bringing in um, an income to feed the families. So that's the first problem. On top of this, there'd been a famine in the land, uh, probably just a result of several years of poor harvest. And so grain is scarce everywhere. And then what was happening on top of that, we read about in verse 3, is that these sort of wealthy nobles, these leaders... And these greedy merchants, what they'd done is they'd stored and they'd hoarded the grain and then inflated the price of the grain uh, to the extent that people were having to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their homes just so that they could buy the necessary food so that they could survive. So the chief breadwinner's gone and, and they're just having to sell everything just to get grain. And then on top of that, in verse 4, we see that they're having to pay the king's tax. 
So here they are, um, these people, they're back in the promised land. They're back in Jerusalem. They're slaving their guts out, kind of rebuilding the walls. And they're getting squeezed from sort of every, every front. They're having to face these huge challenges. They've got no money. They've got no fields. They've got no homes. They've got no farms. And worst of all, uh, we see in verse 5, some of them have had to, um, they've even been forced to sell their children into slavery just so that at least some of the members of the family can survive. You see that in verse uh, 5. You know, if ever there was a picture of poverty, it's, it's here in verses 1 to 5 of Nehemiah chapter 5. And there's something in here that provides, I think, a, a, just a brilliant analysis of um, the causes of poverty, the things that cause poverty. Oftentimes, you know, particularly in the West, uh, you will hear people, we hear people say that um, poverty is, 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 is really about a lack of things. You know, poverty is about a lack of stuff. You know, you're poor when you don't have much stuff. You don't have many things. You're, you know, you're poor when you don't have enough to eat. You're poor when you don't have a place to sleep. Uh, you're poor if you don't have a house. You're poor if you don't have land to grow your own food or water to irrigate your land. And of, of course, there's, there's truth in all of that. Um, the Israelites here are poor in the sense that they don't have much stuff. The problem with thinking that poverty is just about a lack of stuff is that um, not only does it run the risk of being superficial, uh, it can also be really damaging. Damaging in terms of our understanding of what's going on and damaging in terms of our response and what our response should be. Uh, But it's the way that a lot of wealthy people look at the poor. And so our tendency or a response can sometimes be, well, you know, you you haven't got much stuff. so, So we'll come along and we'll give you lots of stuff. We'll give you stuff. And because you haven't got any stuff, and so we'll give you stuff. And then you'll have stuff like us because we've got loads of stuff. And when you've got loads of stuff like us, then you'll be like us and you won't be poor anymore. And then it's job done. Simple. And so what happens is we become the helpers and, and you become the helpless. And uh, you are the needy and, and, and I am your provider, your incredibly generous, gracious benefactor. I, am, I become your salvation, your Messiah. And did I mention, by the way, how great I am for giving you my stuff? But this Bible passage, I think, gives some um, deeper insights into some of the causes of poverty. And I think it helps us see that poverty isn't actually just solely about a lack of stuff. I think one of the first things it shows us is that poverty is actually rooted in broken relationships. It's actually rooted in broken relationships. Look at verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject some of our sons and daughters to slavery. Talk with some of the largest relief agencies in the world and consistently and constantly they are saying that so much of the poverty that we see around the world, be that near local or far, it actually results from people who are not being treated as brothers and sisters. It results because people are not being treated as equals. Instead, uh, they are excluded. Instead, they are labeled as not being one of us. Instead, they are marginalized. They're cut off. They're They're treated not as brothers and sisters. They're treated not as fellow human beings. Treated really as a a project or a problem to be fixed. Poverty isn't just a deficit of stuff. Poverty in all of its guises 
in all of its guises, be that social, material, emotional, spiritual, all of it comes about because of broken relationships. Poverty is also the direct result of the misuse of power. Have a look at uh, verse 5 again. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. See, that word powerless is incredibly important. You see, their poverty has come about due to an inequality of power. Not of stuff, but of power. And um, wherever we see misused power, poverty is one of the outcomes. It's not an absence of stuff that produces poverty. It's uh, often a misuse of power. So here's Nehemiah and his challenge. All of this is going on around him. And it's all come about because of uh, leaders and noblemen within the, the, the family, if you like, exacting uh, and exploiting, usury and, and exploiting uh, those less advantaged to themselves. And so his challenge is how is he going to handle this poverty that's come about within the people as a result of these broken relationships and this misuse of power. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they couldn't find anything to say. Change comes about by facing challenge. Change comes about by doing something. It says in verse 6, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. That's, that's Nehemiah's first response. You know, and it's, not, it's not hard to understand Nehemiah's reaction to what's going on. He, he was angry, and rightly so. The people for whom he was responsible were finding themselves in Difficult situations basically because of the sin of a small minority. And he was angry about it. But, you know, it's not difficult in those sort of situations to kind of have an emotional response, to get angry or to, to, to feel sympathy or to feel bad. Um, Nehemiah gets more than just an emotional reaction. Um, and the first thing he does after he gets angry is he starts to think about what he's hearing. Verse 7, I pondered these things in my mind. Yes, he gets angry. Yes, he gets mad at the damage that's being caused and the havoc that's being created by these selfish individuals. But what he does is he goes beyond his anger and he ponders. He reflects. He considers. He thinks. And then he does something about it. And what he does is to confront those who need confronting. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. So he, he calls all those nobles and officials together to uh, confront them. Because the reality is change comes about when we confront one another and when we call one another into more. Have a look at verse 9. He says this, So I continued. Here he is at his meeting with all of these chaps, and he says, um, What you're doing is not right. What you are doing is not right. 
Look at the way Nehemiah confronts them and, and calls them to change. And, you know, that can't have been an easy meeting, uh, by the way. Um, but you notice how he doesn't say to the gathered throng, he doesn't say, listen, guys, just an aside, do you know what? Um, it, it probably, it's, probably, it's probably better if you just let all those people go. You know, let, this, let all your slaves go and give them all back the land. Like, it's probably, it's probably actually in your interest to do that. I mean, the truth of the matter was it probably wasn't in their interests, at least not financially, not for the nobles and the officials. It wasn't in their interests. You know, when you read the Bible, there's a whole lot of things in the Bible that may not actually be in our self-interest. Um, choosing not to sue somebody, you know, not to take somebody to court, it may not be in your economic interest, and yet the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've already been completely defeated. You've already lost goes on and says why not rather be wronged why not rather be cheated basically just let it go so you're in the right so what that's a paraphrase it says this instead you you, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do the same thing to your brothers and sisters what about paying taxes you know whilst it it may not be in our own economic self-interest to pay our taxes Right? Particularly if you're self-employed. Um, the Bible, whatever your thoughts, the Bible's really, really clear on our civic responsibility on that subject. Romans 13 says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. It may not be in our self-interests. But that doesn't appear to be the point. What does Nehemiah say? Very simply in verse 9 he says, What you are doing is not right. And by doing it, by handling it this way, what he's doing is he's treating people with the dignity of taking responsibility for their actions before God themselves. He says, what you are doing is not right. And for any of us as followers of Jesus, you know, we're, we're, we're here and every single one of us, we're trying our level best to do life and to live life according to the contents of this book, according to our best understanding, our best interpretation revealed through the Holy Spirit of this book. Um, we're living life and trying to live life through this book. We need to be open. We need to allow ourselves to be open to being confronted from time to time, if and when what we're doing doesn't seem to be matching up with what we find in there. If what we're doing is not right. Otherwise, we run the risk of just being hearers but not doers of the world. Of the word. And, and none, of us, none of us really want that. None of us want to be hypocrites. So if we're trying to follow Jesus, you know, and um, you know, we look through the Bible and all of us are sat here and we're kind of agreed, you know, I don't know, that um, it seems to me pretty clear that from what I understand of the Bible, you know, the Bible advocates that, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend outside of marriage, you know, it's just not a good idea. It's just actually not very good for either of you. Right. Um, if we choose to do that, that's fine. 
But we shouldn't be surprised if somebody, one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, comes up to us and says, what you're doing is not right. Or if we've fallen out with someone over something. But instead of going directly to them and sharing with them the problem that we've got with them, which is what it says in Matthew 18, but instead what we do is we kind of go around and we gossip about it and we talk about them and sort of choose effectively to cause division and uh, spread division in the church. We need to be ready. We need to be open to the fact that someone is going to come up to us and someone is going to take us to one side and say, hold on, time out. What you're doing is not right. Before you talk to me about them, you need to talk to them about them. Because that's what Matthew 18 says. So Matthew 18 says, if your brother or sister sins against you, which we will all inevitably do, accidentally, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, then, by all means, take one or two others along so that, the very, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is just how this thing called Christianity works. This is Christianity 101. This is how we do life as a fellowship together. If we're choosing not to forgive someone who's hurt us, or if we're holding some kind of grudge against someone, and the truth of the matter is, they probably don't even know about it. Yeah? terrible people I need to tell you about how terrible they are and the person who apparently did what they did is like I didn't have a clue if someone would tell me I'd be the first to confess and say I'm so sorry I had no intention please forgive me Um, but if we find ourselves we're unforgiving we're, we're storing up this bitterness and resentment and rage which is only going to damage you because the other person's completely oblivious until you tell them um, it's completely appropriate. We should expect, we should be responsive to our brothers and sisters coming up to us and saying, hold on a second, what you're doing is not right. So much of the challenge, oh my gosh, so much of the challenge that we face, so many of the difficulties facing the church, which cause all kinds of divisions and rifts and misunderstandings and problems, make things so messy and complicated. They could actually be brought to a far quicker and healthier resolution if only instead of listening to gossip... You know, which the writer of Proverbs describes as choice morsels. Like choice morsels going down to the innermost parts. You know, we love it. Tasty. Instead of being like Eleanor Roosevelt, who reputedly had a cushion embroidered with, if you can't say something good about someone, come and sit right here by me. Um, If instead of these attitudes, we confronted things, where and when we see them, with a kind but firm What you are doing is not right. So many of the challenges that we find ourselves facing, they just get a whole lot easier and better. Okay, challenge, power, confrontation, finally service very quickly. Have a look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, Their assistants also lauded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Uh, Instead, I devoted myself to to the work on this wall. See how Nehemiah um, devotes himself and focuses his attention to the job at hand, that the job that God has called him to do, the mandate of his calling, restoring and rebuilding the wall. He, he, 
That's where his energy, that's where his focus goes. Yes, he has authority over the people. Don't forget, by now he's become the governor of Judah. But just look at the way that he walks in that authority. Um, He never loses sight of his call on the call on his life to serve. First and foremost, he's a servant. He's not someone who lords it over others. He knows that he's been called to serve. And yes, he knows that he's going to face challenge along the way. He knows that challenge is a reality of life, but he's not going to be thrown by it. He's not going to be distracted by it. He's not going to be intimidated by it. Um, He knows that whatever challenge that he's going to have to face, he's going to need to think it through regardless of his emotional reaction in the moment. He's going to need to stop and to pause and to think it through as he tries to get to the root of the problem, not just the symptom. He understands that he's most likely going to get pretty upset by challenge. It's going to make him probably, possibly angry. Um, But he knows that he's going to have to be courageous and he knows that he's going to have to tackle it head on and not shy away from some really difficult conversations. He knows that as part of the calling on his life, he's going to have to confront people. Part of the mandate of his calling is part of what we're called to do and and, and to confront people when they need to be confronted, not to crush them. That's not the point. The point of confrontation isn't to crush. The point of confrontation is to, and challenge, is um, is to call people into the fullness of all that the Lord has for them. When we challenge people, when we confront people in love, we're doing them a kindness. It's the kingdom of God at work. To let it go and to ignore it, just let stuff seethe and sit and fester and rot and destroy, which is what the enemy's plan for us all is. And then finally, with his eyes fixed on the Lord, Nehemiah is just going to keep on keeping on. He's just going to keep on keeping on serving the Lord to the best of his ability, holding on and holding firm to the mandate of his calling.